The Incomparable is brought to you by Loot Crate. For less than $20 a month, Loot Crate gives the geek in you a special treat every month. It's a subscription box service with $40 or more worth of geek, gamer, and pop culture gear, collectibles, apparel, comics, and more delivered to your mailbox every month. This month, bringing you a fight for the ages. Suit up, choose your allies, and enter the arena for combat. They're ready to stand their ground this month with exclusive items from Blizzard, Fallout 4, Capcom, sponsor-worthy loot from the Hunger Games, as well as a few more items that will help their winners emerge victorious. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. When the cutoff happens, it's over. Go to lootcrate.com slash Snell and enter code Snell to save $3 on your new subscription today. The Incomparable, number 272. November 2015. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We're here. I'm convening a special episode of our book club series, as was uh, foretold in our fifth anniversary episode. In the middle of that episode, our good pal, Mr. Uh, Scott McNulty, I believe, suggested we could go back and do a classic uh, science fiction novel for a book club, like uh, Foundation or something like that. And I... Always am trying to find new topics because we're getting up toward episode 300, and I thought that was a great idea. And so here we are to talk about the Foundation Trilogy, and I'm going to specify that, the three original Foundation books that are actually not really novels even, but collections of short stories that are all interconnected. And it's it's a strange uh, little thing uh, written by Isaac Asimov between 1942 and and 1950 and collected in three volumes in the 50s, in 51, 52, and 53. Joining me to talk about the future history of the galaxy and the fall of the galactic empire and things like that. Of course, the originator of this, he didn't glen us, second definition. He's here (laughs) even after he suggested it. It's Scott McNulty. Hi, Scott. This is all going according to my plan. Right. You're going to just hang up on us and laugh and laugh and laugh. No, you just finished rereading them all in your fine, high-quality, leather-bound paper volume of Foundation. It's true. I'm holding it in my hands right now. It's a a lovely tome. Although I did find an annoying typo where uh, they used an exclamation point instead of an L. So that annoyed me. But other than that. Oh, so they must like have OCR'd it or something uh, in order to probably. create the new one. And oh. Well, it's a leather-bound mistake. So there's that. <laughs> uh, also joining us, uh, David Lohr. Hello. Hello there. I, uh, I foresaw this about a thousand years ago and am, <laughs> in fact, in the American equivalent of Trantor. Okay. Which is Indiana. Yeah. Middle of nowhere. At America's end. That's right. Uh, Also joining us, Erica Ensign, who was present when Scott foretold, as was David, when (laughs) when Scott foretold that we would do this episode. Hello. I was indeed. Yep. And I I think I'm here to represent all of the uh, females in this this series, which is actually going to be pretty easy. So I've got the the simple job. It's it's like, you know... 20 seconds, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, we'll get to we'll that. Get to that. A- and uh, my, my last guest, a mutant who has emerged <laughs> with the ability to control <laughs> emotions and thoughts. It's Monty Ashley. Hello. Uh, I'm just going to behave randomly and assume that this was predicted to be the right thing for me to do. Good. Excellent. Well As done. per usual, right? Plot solved. <laughs> yeah. That's Monty's <laughs> standard strategy for the incomparable. Well... Uh, so foundation, I, I heard I had a friend in in uh, elementary school and high school who who kept who endlessly talked about uh, the foundation novels, and I didn't read them until maybe ten years ago, not not a long time wow. ago. 
Um, yeah, I know. It's amazing I didn't get spoiled. I, I don't know. It was always obscure. But what's fascinating about it, I did read iRobot when I was when I was younger, and and it strikes me that this is this is from this period of time, not just because it's Asimov, but also because of the the market for science fiction at this point. That a lot of these stories were being told in short story form, essentially in uh, various pulp magazines at the time and then collected into books later. And so things that we think of as books or novels are not that. Like iRobot is a collection of somewhat interlinked short stories. And the Foundation series, you could view it as a trilogy. You could view it as a series of short stories. Or you could view it as sort of like one big story told in these kind of disparate parts. But one of the reasons that I felt pretty comfortable taking these three original books and talking about them here is that, you know, really, this is the this, even though he wrote sequels and prequels later, Mm -hmm. these are the books, these are the stories that Asimov's Asimov told in a uh, short period of time and that they're in a straight timeline. And this is the tale he wanted to tell about this sort of galactic future history thing. So they don't, and they, it doesn't feel like a novel. It, it is a weird kind of reading experience. I think. No, I came, I thought that I came to it late, but not nearly as late as you did, Jason. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh yeah. Because I, I read a lot of Asimov when I was younger, um, but it was more of his his really early stuff, like Pebble in the Sky and the Stars Like Dust. So like really his, his earliest novels. And I had heard people talk about the Foundation just like you had, but sort of never got around to it until. I mean, it was probably high school or college, so, you know, still still lots of years ago, but mm, yeah. uh, later than his other stuff. And and I had not known that they were collected novellas, short stories, et cetera, et cetera. So it felt really disjointed to me. I was expecting it to be more like one of his novels. And I think the first time I went through it, I had real trouble with it simply because I was not expecting that kind of a format. And, you know, I, I wanted to get in touch with the characters and then suddenly they were gone and it was somebody else and it hasn't been that many pages. I was like, what's going on? So... That was my experience. I guess that that part of telling this galactic scope. I mean, the the premise here is that is that there's a galactic empire. It spans the the Milky Way galaxy, and uh, this guy Harry Seldon foretells that the the empire is in decay and is going to fall, and there will be a a, a dark age that will last tens of thousands of 30, years. But thirty thousand years. <laughs> That's tens. Yowza. Okay, if you want to be specific, I was just being more dramatic. Tens Whoa. of thousands of years. <laughs> he's, it's a five. He's very specific. Figure dark in the ages. Book. Yeah. Yes, he is. And he knows everything that will happen during that entire time. Uh, Indeed. But he says, I have a plan that will allow this dark age to be reduced to only a thousand years. tens of hundreds (laughs) of years. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, Ten hundred years. Exactly. (laughs) And, uh, and, and, And then a new galactic empire will rise. Yay. I guess because uh, and and the parallel here is with the fall of Rome and you know it's all in there but I feel like one of the the the, the things about the scope of this galaxy spanning and uh, the time frame is that it's gonna the story he wants to tell is gonna be chopped up I mean there are there are stories that continue characters uh, like the mule we see a couple of times but really it's like the sweep of history like you know you get to know some characters and then the next story it's like oh yeah that was 50 years ago they're all dead and you're like all right I guess that's what this is about because it is this this could not be a broader canvas in terms of space and time well Asimov was never that interested in his characters as people with mm-hmm. emotions or goals and i feel like this is the ultimate expression of that <laughs> totally there's one scene where where you get a room where there's people like five or six people in the room talking uh you don't find out 
any of their names except for one guy. Um, and I'm not even I'm not even talking about the second founder foundation stuff yet. It's just these are these are active players in the first uh-huh. foundation, and th- you don't get any information about them except for you know one has a thin face, one has a slightly yeah. wider face. And I was like, wow, this is this is the perfect passage <laughs> to uh, to illustrate his feeling on characterization because yeah. there was nothing. As soon as they fulfill their duty to the plot. They just drop out immediately. This is kind of old school because I I read uh, when we did that Retro Hugo's episode, I read something that one of the one of the E.E. Doc Smith, I think, Mm -hmm. books. Yeah. And it it reminded me of this, too, which is uh, there are some characters when necessary and they might not be particularly fleshed out as we think of it sort of in modern fiction. But uh, the ideas are there about, again, these big ideas like galaxy spanning ideas and the characters are a little bit less of a focus and they come and go and and again if you're pulled all the way back to see the whole galaxy over the course of hundreds if not a thousand years um uh, yeah individual people do sort of get lost in the you know they're they're like they're they're like ants they look like ants from up here (laughs) something like something like that well and and the thrust of what psycho history right which is a, a a very big component of this series is that the individual doesn't matter uh, unless you're a mutant <laughs> or Harry uh, Seldon or Harry Seldon. He's the one right. that matters. Uh, so you could see, I mean, I, obviously as of, I've read other of his books that do not have that as a thrust and the characters are equally as thin. So uh, <laughs> I'm not going to try and say that that was some kind of uh, writerly device he, he did, but uh, I can imagine writing a term paper that argues that. Sure. Sure. I mean, you could you could definitely make that argument. It, it is it is an interesting premise here, right? The the, the idea here, um, again, going to the, the the fall of Rome and all of that, is that this is all um, this is all fated to happen. He foresees it, and it's sort of like making making the best of a bad situation in some ways. It's like you know, look, I'm getting I'm getting you down from. 30,000 to 1,000. That's pretty good, right? I mean, we'll all be dead before it happens, but we can we can do this. It's it's a little bit altruistic. Um it's and it's and it's definitely people have had this um reaction to the series I think because of this this big idea that we're going to create these, you know, secret secret organizations that are going to save humanity because if you look at our if you look at our past, there there is a period of time that again, um, it depends on your perspective, but in in uh, if you look at European history, there's this sort of general feeling like European history has a giant hole in it for a while because Rome fell and then there's the Renaissance and in between everybody was kind of muddling around and there was a lot of lost information and some of that is a little oversold, I think. But, uh, it, but you know, that that is influencing this whole story here. And so that that's an interesting aspect of the story. Scott, uh, why don't I start with you since you just reread all of this stuff? What what um what struck you in rereading it? The, the, this is I I'm having a hard time trying to figure out how to get into this because it is a series of short stories that are interlinked, set in this big idea of psychohistory and galaxy spanning uh, stuff. So what what struck you when you reread about this? Well, I uh, we were just talking before we started recording uh, that Jason, you had recently read Ancillary Mercy, and I finished Ancillary Mercy. Uh, and then I started rereading the Foundation Trilogy, huh? which is an interesting juxtaposition of books because Ancillary Mercy, I think um, – I won't say if I think it's good or bad, although I think it's good uh, – is <laughs> – Wait, wait, wait. Wait, huh? <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> That's not how that works. <laughs> me, me too, Scott. 
but it's a secret. Mm. Don't tell anybody. I who it's uh, lots of things happen in it, but it is you know obviously a very modern science fiction book. It is dealing with big ideas, um, but it's doing it in a very modern way. And then it, you know looking at a book uh, or series of short stories that was written seventy years ago, uh, doing basically painting on the same canvas, right? Galaxy spanning stuff is happening. Uh, but it's handled in a very, very different way. Uh, and yet I still thought as I was reading it, it didn't, obviously it is a work of its time. Uh, and I was looking, I was trying to keep track of all the female characters as I read the first hundred pages. Uh, and zero is easy to keep track of. So, (laughs) (laughs) so I thought that was interesting. Uh, I also thought I was reading it, uh, that any of the characters could have been male or female because it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you want to, and they're working on like a, a TV series of this, I think, which I don't understand how they're going to do that. But uh, I imagine they are going to make a lot more characters women, I hope. There's a lot of 40s and 50s science fiction that is men standing around in rooms, smoking cigars, having conversations. Yes, and this, this is of that ilk. And yet, mm. I, I have very fond memories of reading this when I was in high school. Um, and I still I reread it, and I still think it's fantastic. Uh, and and it, it still blew my mind that this man seventy years ago thought of these crazy things, and so much the of what we know of science fiction has been built on these similar concepts. Uh, not that Isaac Asimov invented them by himself, but he certainly laid a lot of foundations uh, for uh, <laughs> modern science fiction. And and when you look at this work. In that context, I feel like you can't miss the importance of it. Mm. And if you look at, if you're looking at it and trying to see it as a modern science fiction story, uh, there are many things it does wrong. Uh, but when you, I feel like when you look at it in context, it's just an amazing piece of work, uh, and, and that's that's what I think. <laughs> it's interesting from a modern context. I think you could look at at this and say, um, it's like raw material for not just these what eight or 10 short stories it's like raw material for hundreds of novels like you could take you could write a modern science fiction novel based on like five pages of the foundation books because and this is a little like how comic books used to tell a complete story in one you know part of an issue that goes for like 16 pages and now that same story gets told over eight issues because everything's decompressed but it's but in modern a lot of modern fiction i feel like you know you end up spending more time with the characters which again was sort of not the point of this it was more about the ideas Mm -hmm. something like the ancillary series is you know it's about a star empire but it's not about the and and about a uh, kind of rise and fall of power but it is this zoomed in close on some of the characters and how it affects them and and i you know i do think you could you could randomly that could be a new podcast where you just take five pages of <laughs> of uh, a foundation and uh describe science fiction novels that could come out Brand of it but i think that i think that that is that that is part of it is that it's 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 not like what we read now but the ideas are huge and interesting it's just you know today it would read like a like a pitch or an outline or something more than a an actual story <laughs> Yes, that's true. And I seem to I remember thinking to myself about Isaac Asimov that he had a lot of great ideas, but he wasn't the world's greatest writer uh, or, or, you know, stylist. Um, yeah. But I've read uh, a few passages in this book and I was just struck at how beautifully he describes generally planets. Um, <laughs> not he doesn't bother with people generally, but uh, and uh, maybe like, you know, air cars and things. And there are some, you know, very 
well done pieces of prose work in here. Uh, of course, there are hundred pages of uh, exposition and people standing yeah. around in rooms. But no, no, he's a storyteller, and the point of his story is the big picture more than it's the characters. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Erica, what do you think the the appeal of these stories is all this time? Like, because as Scott said, this is these these were written in the forties, and people still talk about them and cite them. I mean, they're they're considered classics. Um, what what is it that that strikes you that that um you know, makes these things be things we still read today, even other than because a podcast is going to do an episode about them. Because that's a common one, but other than that. Well, yeah, the most common, perhaps. Um, perhaps. I think, like I said, I had trouble with it the first time I read it, but then when I went back to it afterwards, I, I was it hit me much better because I kind of knew what to expect format-wise. And I think one of the things that these that draws people back to these books is just sort of the audacity of it. Like, he mm-hmm. has created this, I mean, super, super huge time spanning story and it's not just the fact that it's spanning a lot of time because there are many books and series of books out there that you know give you the whole history of a family or something like that but this is actually uh, one person at the beginning of it maps out all of these events and is supposedly <laughs> predicting everything that's going to happen and having this great plan in place and i think that i mean that's the kind of thing that you have to either get on board with at the beginning or you're really really not going to enjoy these books at all uh which i think is probably the complaint that i've heard from from people who just can't get their head around that and be like oh that's just a stupid idea well then i point out all the flying cars and all that kind of stuff and, mm. and i'm like well you know what i'm willing to uh, i'm willing to go along with that so once you jump on board with that premise it's it's kind of fascinating to just see how it plays itself out and one thing that i find in a lot of isaac asimov's work is i mean i get the impression that he is just as delighted as the reader is, if not more so, with how clever he is and how much <laughs> and how well he's able to, you know, tie things up in a neat little bow. And I, you know, we don't get a lot of character development, but we awfully we get an awful lot of characters speaking at the end of each story to explain how clever they were uh, yes. and how how well they did things. And I mean, at, at this stage in my life, I think that is less exciting to me than it was when I first came to the Foundation series um, and many of his other works. So that was something that I just grabbed onto really tightly and enjoyed the uh, the, the mystery aspect of it and having having the the twist explained at the end because I never, ever kind of saw that sort of stuff coming. I just wasn't good at that. Um, so I think that's one of the things, especially if you're someone like, like me who came to it you know, at a fairly decent age, or if you came to it even younger, <clears throat> most of the people that I knew who had talked about it had read it in like, you know, elementary school or junior high or something like that. So I would say audacity is, is sort of the, yeah. <laughs> the big thing. Time for a break for me to tell you about our sponsor this week. It's Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? You are listening to this podcast. I would classify you as that. And Loot Crate is the subscription box for you. Loot Crate is a subscription box service with $40 or more worth of geek, gamer, and pop culture gear, collectibles, apparel, comics, and more delivered into your mailbox every single month. Make sure to head to LootCrate.com slash Snell, my last name, and enter code Snell to save $3 on any new subscription. Every month, there is a different theme for Loot Crate. They're all inspired by classic movie and video game releases, pull from pop culture franchises. Previous crates have included items from franchises like Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda, and many more. This month, it's a fight for the ages. You can suit up 
choose your allies, and enter the arena for combat. They're ready to stand their ground this month with exclusive items from Blizzard, Fallout 4, Capcom, sponsor-worthy loot from the Hunger Games, as well as a few more items that will help winners emerge victorious. Whether you're risking your life in battle or taking no prisoners in the wasteland, our loot will be at your side to help keep things interesting. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. And did we mention they ship to over 13 different countries, too? You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific time, that's the best time zone, by the way, to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So before the 19th at 9 p.m., go to LootCrate.com Snell. Enter code Snell. Save $3 on your new subscription to Loot Crate today. And thank you to Loot Crate for sponsoring The Incomparable. Well, Erica, to your point about Isaac being fond of his own cleverness, I will say that I have here on my bookshelf Asimov's Annotated Gilbert and Sullivan, an original interpretation <laughs> of the world's best-loved light opera by Isaac Asimov. And wow. it's over a thousand pages long. Yeah. <laughs> Because he decided to annotate all of Gilbert and Sullivan, just so everyone would know all the things he knows about light opera. See, today that would be a tumbler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, he's a smart guy, and 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 he he could get a book contract That's and say, right. "I have opinions about the things that I like, and <laughs> I can churn them out." He certainly could get a book contract. <laughs> He, he couldn't mm, stop writing, sure. so no hundreds, hundreds of them. You know, Erica, you mentioned the you mentioned the the way that the, many of these stories ends. The the one where it's sort of like the fate of the mule and what happens to the mule in in Second Foundation. Um, that that literally ends with like ten pages of now I know that you know, but you know that I know that you know that I know. But did you know that I know that he knew that you knew that I knew that you know? And at, at some point, somebody's head almost literally explodes with the yes. the chain of of logic that happens, and it's kind of funny. And yet at the same time, you're like, come on. It, it did take <laughs> me like... a little. Uh, I had to reread a couple of passages to to sort of make sure that I was following the lines of those logic. So and and you know. Everything that he laid out was correct. It just it it was so intricate that I had to reread it. But I do agree with Scott that there there are a decent number of you know kind of beautiful passages in here. Since I was reading on my Kindle for the first time, I thought that the Foundation was one of the books that I had brought along with me when I moved. I had a nice hardcover copy, but apparently that was not the case because it was big and heavy. But so I just bought everything for my Kindle and was highlighting passages, and I actually found some that I really liked. So so yay Asimov. Yeah, I don't. I, I think I think that he was a very talented writer. I wrote a, I, I read a biography of his and wrote a whole like term paper about him in high school. I mean, he is a, he's a Ooh. fascinating writer. Um, yes, I did all that without having read Foundation. Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> I know. Oh my. I know. I know. It was you uh, monster. Yeah. Well, I just I, it had been overhyped to me. I had to. I had to wait. I mm-hmm. had to wait. A fascinating guy, but um, uh, yeah, just he, there was stuff that interested him, and it was often that audacity. It was that big picture. Like Harry Seldon himself, Ooh. Isaac Asimov had a vision mm-hmm. for a thousand years of galactic history that he wanted to, to, to share with us. I don't think he actually did have that vision, which is what frustrated uh-huh. readers. Like, people kept saying, well, what happened next? Like, and oh. his, an- his answer was normally... I don't know. It all worked out somehow. <laughs> Figure it out yourself, kids. Wait till I come up with the next novella. How about if there's a mutant? When he, when he was writing all the sequels and connecting everything up, 
Uh, part of the reason he then went backwards and started writing prequels was because he said, I have no idea what comes next. I was reading something about how he didn't even really like a foundation all that much after he wrote it, but someone, they were like, you need to write a sequel. And he was like, but there's a plan and it's going to work out. Uh, how about a mutant? Basically <laughs> mm-hmm. what Jason said. And we'll figure it <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, well, you got to put a, throw a wrench in the works. I, I, you could, you can actually, if you think about it, it's like, Okay, I need to write more of these because people like them. But the whole point is that Harry Seldon's plan is going to come off and it's going to bring about the new empire in a thousand years. And and so how do I get more mileage out of this? And that was – I'm sure he just went through the thought process of what if there was something unexpected? What would that be? Maybe it's a mutant who has powers who is going to – although even then I kind of thought in the end I, I, I was skeptical about whether the mule could really – uh, I mean, I, I felt it was kind of faded, like, you know, we got this under control. There might be a mutant at some point, but it's going to work out. It'll all work out. I kind of hated the idea that the reason this particular mutant wanted to go on such a rampage throughout the universe of, of revenge is because he looked weird and felt really bad about mm-hmm. that. I hate the idea that this many, you know, millennia in the future, people are still going to be judged so much <laughs> on their appearance that they decide to have, you know, the bloodlust to take over the entire galaxy. Well, to be fair, he looked kind of stupid. <laughs> <laughs> they were bringing televisions to farmers in the far future. I thought that was a funny little touch in one of them. Is, yeah. Well, the technology overall is very interesting. I mean, it's it's so clear when these books were written. He's got a lot of far future ideas, but everybody is still smoking. Yeah. Like he couldn't picture a time when smoking wasn't yes. a thing people did. Or paper. Yeah. Everything's read on paper. Their ashtrays were <laughs> nuclear. That's what Which I love awesome. about pulp stories from this era is mm-hmm. you've got people who show up in spaceships and then step out and talk exactly like 1930s gangsters. <laughs> it's, it's so great. There's the dictation machine in the last story in, in Second Foundation where she's reading. She dictates it and it writes things out in longhand in pen on paper. And I thought, that's mm-hmm. just so strange. But, you know, again, you don't <laughs> the things you imagine about the future and the things you don't. And also the argument that science fiction is really about, you know, the time in which it's written and you want them to be recognizable characters and science fiction that pushes those boundaries and makes it like, here's what people will really be like 500 years or 1,000 years from now are probably not going to be things that are even comprehensible and uh, probably very challenging. And, you know, he's telling a Rome allegory here. And to be fair, I mean, when I first read these books, uh, probably like early 90s, 90s. Uh, at that time, we weren't in the position that we are now. So most of those things mm. didn't seem that far fetched. The idea of everybody smoking was still not it's still not that weird. And the idea of everything still being on paper completely made sense. So I'm sure when I was first reading it, I, I heard about that dictation machine and was like, oh, man, I want one. Whereas now I'm like, oh, that would be clunky yeah. and terrible. <laughs> But it would still be kind of awesome. <laughs> well, apparently you can make the paper smell good, too. So yeah, that's something. well, you know. If you're a girl. <laughs> there, there are girls in this book? A couple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a few. So I liked the first, the beginning parts of the Foundation story when it's all about Harry Seldon predicted exactly this and this guy. We got to make up an encyclopedia, but it's not really what it's about. Yeah. And, and somebody yeah. needs to figure out how to get through this particular thing. I am less interested in it when it turns into a hunt for the second foundation. Mm. And also yeah. the second foundation is actually rigging everything all the time. So Harry Seldon wasn't even that clever to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I agree. I think the mule is an interesting thing where it is quite a gambit on his part um, to have this character and it broken across the the two books too, which is uh, interesting. 
like it gives it sort of a cliffhanger kind of feel to it, which is kind of interesting for things that are generally not connected to each other. But there there are a lot of these that that are are more I would say yeah, they're more they're more uninteresting once the the the, the most audacious stuff is at the beginning, which is that you're watching yeah. t- you're watching time go ahead. I love that there's the there's the hologram machine that just <laughs> pops up and Harry Seldon gives like more facts about how his plan is progressing because he's figured it all <laughs> yeah. out. Uh, you know, early on that that's kind of that's kind of fun because it's the we're we're setting this up. We're um and also I think it's an exciting story of, about trying to preserve society. Right, the, the idea is yeah. we're trying to we're trying to yeah. save knowledge and culture from a thirty thousand year dark age, and even at a thousand years, we still need to preserve it. And that's kind of a fun story to tell. I like psychohistory as the hard science fiction concept of what if this science existed. What would that mean? And when it turns out that what it means is that there's a race of telepathic supermen who can control minds and do all this other stuff, it's getting a little goofy. But they learned how to do it. Inside the basic, uh, the, 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 the capital of the empire all along. Yeah. <laughs> Fooled you. Tricked yeah. you. As a, yeah. as a social science major, <laughs> um, one of the things that amuses me about this is that this is, this is a very social science kind of science fiction, right? It's like, you know what? Social science is going to be in the future is going to be so good that it can predict everything that will happen in an entire galaxy for a thousand years. That's how good we're going to get with social science. I didn't major in psychohistory, though. Wasn't offered. What? I could only minor in it. Uh, oh, what kind of school did you go to? Uh, it was Trantor Tech. It was not that good. <laughs> <laughs> but man, can you machine things? Good, good robotics program. <laughs> Mostly logic puzzles. Hey, Erica. Uh, so, uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about the uh, largely utter lack of women in these? Uh, in these <laughs> you books? know the. I have read an awful lot of books um, by Isaac Asimov and other writers from this era, and that's that's a thing that when I was first reading them, I didn't even really notice because I didn't know it could be any different. Uh, Now that I have grown up and read a lot of cool books with lots of exciting female characters, the the lack stands out a whole lot more. Um, And, you know, maybe it wouldn't be quite so bad if the very few examples of female characters we had in here weren't treated the way they were treated. Uh, I mentioned I highlighted some passages, so I'd just Mm -hmm. like to uh, to give you guys a little taste um, (laughs) of the stuff that jumped out at me. So we had the uh, uh, Tezendian uh, planet where they landed on one of the outskirt planets. Um, But uh, they're talking about the machines from there. It says even Tezendian machines and Tezendian food was better than the native stuff. And there were clothes for the women of other than gray homespun, Mm. which was a very important thing. Like there are no women on this planet that we are talking about. The only information that we get about them is that they like to have their clothes that are more colorful. Imported from other planets. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then you get um, the one female character who really has a whole lot going on is a teenage girl, Arcadia or Arcadia. I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce that. But um, so you have lots of sort of condescending things thrown her way. At least she has some sort of inner life, which I appreciate. But, you know, her dad's asking her, uh, if you're going to pretend you're 19, what are you, what are you going to do when you're 25 and all the boys think you're 30? Um, <clears throat> and then the other fellow telling his father to to shoot whoever this girl is planning on marrying someday because she is just she has her own <laughs> mind and is so headstrong that that would be a terrible thing for any guy that wants to marry her. Yeah. You know, 
the part that stands out is early for me is early in the book when uh, Harry Seldon, uh, somebody is talking to him about, oh, you have a hundred thousand people working in your foundation, and he's like, well, that includes the women, so <laughs> <laughs> quite count. In in my head canon, I like to think that the second foundation is actually all women because they're the ones who know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are often not identified as anything other than right the first speaker and the third speaker and all of that. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's, That's true. Right. Well, we do find out who the first yes. speaker is, but but yeah, like it, and when he's talking about the um, Calgan, the the planet of of luxuries and stuff, uh, he's talking about all of the the people that that go there. So you've got the dandies of the <laughs> imperial court, their sparkling and libidinous ladies, the rough and mm. raucous warlords who ruled in iron the worlds they had gained in blood, with their unbridled and lascivious wenches of the plump and luxurious businessmen of the foundation. With their lush mistresses. I was just like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. that's th- So the only women that visit that planet are, you know, attaches and, and concubines. and But no lush wenches, so. That's yeah. true. The girl in uh, the story at the end of Foundation, Second Foundation, is the granddaughter of uh, of uh, the the Darrells or Darrells that are, that are there who are like, Mm-hmm. Um, traveling with the, with Magnifico the Clown. <laughs> <laughs> but you think they're a little slow on the uptick here about Magnifico the Clown. Our most mm-hmm. uh, dangerous uh, individual character who could upset the entire plan spends most of our time with him uh, dressed as a clown. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but... Uh, Anyway, the, the grandmother of the of the of the girl in that later story um, kills the guy who knows where the second foundation is located. So she is she is basically the uh, the the hero at the end of that. And the only reason she's able to do that is because because she had this feminine characteristic of actually liking uh, the, the the Magnifico or Bobo, which mm-hmm. was he claimed was his original name. I wish he would have stuck with that. Um, <laughs> because she liked him for himself. Oh. Uh, he was he decided to to leave her mind that untouched. And that's the only way that she could could get past him. And which was just it was it seemed like it struck me as a very gendered sort of mm-hmm. treatment for that character. No surprise. But she does kill a kill a guy. So yeah, which was so pretty that's, cool. That's, Not that's nice. But yes, and his head falls off, which I th- I, I remember that passage. She she mm-hmm. blasts his uh, torso, and then his head falls off, which is kind of cool. <laughs> it's tempting to credit Asimov's uh, gender characterizations as strictly a product of the times, but he did spend his entire life grabbing the butt of any woman who came near him. And I've, I've, like I said, I've read plenty of other novels from that time. Actually, when I was growing up, I thought Andre Norton was a dude because, <laughs> <laughs> or Andrew North, as she also wrote, uh, wrote as. And, you know, her books also had some of the same, you know, gender norm stuff going on with, you know, the, the space captain pilot is, is a guy, but she worked in a lot more women. It was, it was, it was possible to do and it, you know, she was a very, very prolific and um, active author at the time she sold just fine so it wasn't the yeah. you know having a woman in the book did not necessarily kill it well you know just glance across the aisle Heinlein was a weirdo but he had plenty of women in his books it wasn't impossible <laughs> in any way yeah and they weren't all sex objects some of them were the main characters of the books in fact that's right very true all right what else what else should we talk about <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we could talk about the lack of aliens. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a whole mm-hmm. galaxy with no aliens in it. Which it's is crazy. refreshing. Yeah. 
it is kind of neat to just just make that choice that the only thing that we get that's remotely approaching an alien is a mutation in humanity itself. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think if there were aliens that would strain credibility mm. even farther with mm. Harry Seldon's predictions because right. that's a mm-hmm. random factor that would impinge from the outside. Like you can say and after 500 years you will have a local government problem and have to elect this type of guy mayor. Yes. You can't really say after 750 years here comes the, the aliens Borg. will invade. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. As I'm sure you're aware the aliens have landed. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it it's uh I like though um what was it Firefly was uh, an example of a world where uh I think Joss Whedon said up front like no aliens, no no aliens, right? And it is kind of refreshing to have those to have those sci-fi world or universes where they're like, you know what? This is going to be about the people and variations of people, and we're not going to. This is not a story about us meeting some other, uh, you know, other other race. The monsters are us. We're our own problems. We're going to have to deal with it, and that's the story he wants to tell here, right? To the point where when we talk about the 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 sack of uh, of uh, of Trantor, right? Um, mm-hmm. they. Uh, refer to it as being sacked by like what it's basically like space barbarians space visigoths they don't it it could be aliens (laughs) right it could be aliens but that's not the point and we have to draw he draws the parallel with rome uh so directly it's like well suffice it to say they were there were you know space barbarians who came and 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 attack them. All right. No aliens. This is not a story about aliens, right? It's a story about uh, yeah. humanity in all its forms, including its mutant forms, apparently. Ooh, yes. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for aliens, don't read The Foundation Trilogy. Or really any of, of I guess, most That's true. He doesn't have a lot of aliens. There's some. No, I mean, most. one of the things that I, that I liked about reading his books that are all sort of set in this universe is the fact that they're all sort of set in this universe. You see Trantor <laughs> right. appear in a whole bunch of his other his other works. And I've always been the kind of the kind of kid that that liked to just spot those little Easter egg things and be yeah. able to kind of hook stuff together. Yeah. So um, regardless of, of the quality of whichever of his books I was reading at the time, I always dug it when I saw a connection to something else. So I like the idea. And that was another reason the second time I read The Foundation that I was much more into it because I recognized that this you know huge sweeping story actually probably enclosed uh, a decent number of the other books that i like or that they preceded it in the same world see i never really bought the connections maybe it's just because i had read the publication date but it seemed very clear to me he had written three different sets of stories and then someone said you know i what i bet would sell foundation meeting empire he said Foundation mm-hmm. and Empire. Okay, here we go. <laughs> and wait. He robots. rolls up his sleeves, puts some stuff mm-hmm. in the typewriter, and off he goes. Three hours later, he has a novel. <laughs> I'm not saying it all fits. I just like it. Well, he's playing in his own universes and then also connecting the dots because well, wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't it blow their minds if they ran into Daniel Oliva on the moon? Right. And it totally right. worked yeah. for me. My mind was blown. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I fell into him back at the end of elementary school, but I but I started with the Caves of Steel and uh, the Naked Sun because mm-hmm. they were mysteries. I was like, oh, I can, you know, this is cool. Yep, and yep. Then, both of those on my shelf right here. They're two of my yeah. favorites. And and then sort of fell into the Foundation books from there. And and so yeah, it was it was neat to see these vague connections between everything. And you go and you go, okay, there's this grand scheme. And then, yeah, in, through the 80s, as he started pulling them all together, I liked them less and less. And I still have not read most mm. of the 
later books just because it it i i didn't believe the connections it just didn't work for me at a certain point i also don't believe they're written by isaac asimov <laughs> yeah eventually that's, well, that's and if, if 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 they are even it's 35 40 years later right so even if it's him yeah it's not the same guy it's a it's a much later and he's you know when it's a cash grab and yeah i like him when he's young and hungry <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, and I, I, I do like the sort of loose connection of the original stories. I, I and you know, uh, and and like even the Martian Chronicles with Bradbury mm. and and just these things that are sort of these loosely linked short stories. I really like that, and I, th- I thought he was much better at that than he was in the later books where he's trying to do a novel where it's a big thing. Yeah. It's like, eh, not as interesting. A couple other notes I had. Um, I, I the get back to the mule for a second. It is a like a hail mary. I do I do feel like the mule is there because it's like what am I going to do now? I got it. I'll have this guy. Um, he's got powers and he's going to confuse people. Um, what I do like about the way the mule is treated is is not not his uh, he's a horrible appearance. He's a skinny guy with a big nose. That's like <laughs> yeah oh yeah, no oh no he's a scrawny uh, guy scrawny guy with a big nose. He can't be in charge of anything. But um. But he is. I like that he's a cipher. That he has no name that is given other than Bobo and and and, and his clown names. Um, he has no name, and uh, I think that's that actually is interesting. That he is he's a mystery and a cipher, and and we don't really understand who he is or where he came from. I think that's kind of fun, and also in the in the context of it being this uh, story, maybe depending on your perspective, you know, story told from a thousand years hence when they're looking back on the history of the galaxy that led to the reestablishment of the, of the galactic empire that they don't know, like the the rest of the details have been lost in time. And I think that's, uh, I I get a little vibe of that from this too. So I think that those are things I like about the mule is that the mule is not, we don't get a lot of like, why does the mule do do what he does? It's like, "Eh." (laughs) who knows? He's angry. He's angry and has powers. I found one of the the best scenes in the book is when uh, uh, Pritcher or Pritcher, I don't know, is uh, walking to meet the mule in the palace that he's oh, taken yeah. over, uh, and he he's walking down this like mile long road to get to the palace, and nobody's around. There are no guards, and uh, Asanoff explains that the mule doesn't need guards because he can control minds. So the whole palace is just empty except for the mule and his little spire. Yeah, when he gets to the office, he's like, you don't even need to look at him. You can just turn away and it's fine. It's cool because he, <laughs> he knows everything you're thinking. It's okay. It's creepy. It is. That is. It is creepy. Um, and speaking of looking at the history books, books, one of the things that features heavily in these books uh, at the beginning, especially, is the Encyclopedia mm. Galactica, which, as we mentioned, is a front. It's a fake um, it, it, it's which I, I enjoy that 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 we're going to set up this big thing and it's going to be really good and it's going to preserve uh it's going to preserve knowledge but behind the scenes we have plans to control the future um I like that and I also of course like that that because the Encyclopedia Galactica um referenced uh specifically in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books as the stuffy annoying everything thing that everybody knows that's available for the galaxy much less interesting than the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy which is what all the hoopy fruits who know where their towel is 
Uh, you know, that this is the, what they read. They don't read dumb old encyclopedia class. Speaking of this, the stuffiness of the encyclopedia, that is one of the things that, that drew me in towards the beginning was I was sort of moved by the plight of, of Harding uh, having to argue against all of these stuffy scholars before they found out that the encyclopedia was a front. And you just get these cranky old men who are like, it's all about the books. There's nothing else going mm. on here. This is it's so important. You shouldn't you know care about anything else. And then they just get like totally beat down. And it was just like, you know, pumping my fist like ha <laughs> suck it old dudes but but i mean the story throughout these these stories you you get that over and over again which is people are like well we've been doing this for we've been doing this for years or since my grandfather was here or whatever like that and and then something changes because that's he wants to get across that time scale thing that you know harry selden's plan is working under the surface and you you know you i love that people commit their entire lives and careers to this thing that's just a front like that's that's <laughs> hilarious yeah not to them. No, it's very sad for them. <laughs> well, if they weren't so jerky about it, I wouldn't take so much pleasure. That's true. You got to see the big picture here, which they uh, mm-hmm. they don't. They they didn't need to see the big picture. They were stooges. I do like uh, kind of uh, a correlation to that is so the foundation is set up because Harry Seldon has a plan and they know his plan. And so the rest of the galaxy knows about it as well, but they don't really know anything about it. So there's this whole religion that the foundation builds up around itself right. to, you know, give technology to the barbarians and, you know, preach to these people. Uh, and so the rest of the galaxy kind of has a chip on its shoulder because the foundation people know what's going to happen in the future, even though they don't really, but they feel like they're protect- protected by this plan and their their winning is inevitable, so they don't really have to do anything. So they uh, all the galaxy hates them. And then the second foundation is introduced... And the foundation finds out that they are themselves being manipulated by another group and they get angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just find that amusing. Well, and the, and the life cycle as our, our some real time follow up from our chat room. Uh, you know, the life cycle is definitely sketched out by him about we're going to go through this phase and this phase and this phase. And he's thinking of the big picture. And I think that I think that's a, a really interesting. I did have one one thing. Uh, which I wanted to mention about the mule, which is the mule's goal is basically to take over everything. So at one point, I, I kept waiting for the foundation people to be like, hey, it turns out we don't need a thousand years of Dark Ages. We can do 500 because there's this guy and he's going to use his powers to unite the galaxy. And he's he's uh, got like birth defects and is going to die in the next 10 years. And then there's an <laughs> empire. So, yay, let's just go, let's go on Team Mule. But instead, they're like, no, no, no. Harry Selton didn't write anything about this. We got to kill this guy. We got to get rid of this guy. Hmm? <laughs> I think the problem there is that once he dies, the like the foundation of of his no pun intended uh, of, <laughs> sure. of, of of his rule mm-hmm. of his rule is it, it falls apart because he is only able to keep people, um, you know, basically he'll have one generation of people who are loyal to him because he or, or you know he could make them loyal to the ideals sure. of peace or whatever. But without the foundation's grand plan, which will bring everything together via whatever it ends up being at the time, economics or force or mental powers who knows knows? Uh, we don't don't get that far in these three books but i think Mm -hmm. that that they they might not have known a lot about psychohistory but they recognized enough to know that his taking over was not not something that could actually last for very long Uh, and maybe wasn't stable maybe they'd have ended up with you know forty thousand years of of crap afterwards and then there's no more harry selden to come up with a plan i think the biggest problem is that the mule wasn't interested in getting the the foundation plan on 
on schedule, right? He want, he he was antagonistic to them and he was going to do things, you know, he was trying to root them out instead of being like, guys, guys, I can help. He was not interested in helping because he was a very bitter, angry mutant. Nobody ever helped him. No. And ugly. That's right. Boy, was he ugly. <laughs> yeah. I, I sometimes had to fight to not picture him as like a, like a mule. <laughs> like, I, I was born with a mule's head. No. Uh, well, that's why he wears the clown outfit to distract yeah. from the just, mule head. He's just a scrawny guy with a big nose. Yes. That's it. Although I did like, uh, you know, speaking of uh, the Selden plan, and you mentioned, Jason, the, the hollow cube where Harry Selden appears oh, yeah. uh, at planned moments when there's a Selden crisis, although <laughs> yep. hey, they never know when that's going to happen, but he just shows up and he's like, hey, I'm going to give you vague uh, advice that isn't really advice about what you're about to do. Because I recorded this 200 years ago. <laughs> exactly. And then confuse <laughs> you more and then vanish. But feel free to sit down if you're standing. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and smoke. Yeah. Everybody smoke. It would have been more realistic if eventually Harry Seldon was speaking in a language none of them understood. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's they get, yes. They get the old, the old uh, galactic scholars there to translate. <laughs> yeah, because... I personally am not great at whatever they were speaking in 1100. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Debased Latin, I guess. Something uh, like that. That's true. But I like that. So he sets it up, and every, every time Selden appears, he is right because he has a plan. And then the mule appears, and one of the people has figured out, done a little psychohistory, and is like, oh, I know a Selden crisis is approaching. That means Selden's going to appear and tell us what to do. So let's go down to the, the time bunker or whatever the heck they called it. I forget. And uh, <laughs> he'll tell us what to do. And then he appears, and he's like, as you know, you are currently in a civil war. And the traitors, and they're all like, what? This has nothing to do with what's going on. Uh, I just enjoyed that moment. Very much, yeah. when everyone was freaking out, <laughs> and the mule was there as well. Spoiler alert! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I also like the idea that he's sometimes talking to an empty room. Yes, that's sad because they, you know, they didn't bother to show up because they, you know, they they fixed the Selden crises crises themselves, so they they didn't go and listen to what he had to say. Like I would want to be there, even if we managed to solve it. I would like, dude from hundreds of years ago is just going yeah. to appear and start talking to us out of the past. That's pretty interesting. He's the guy that's the architect of everything that's happening now. You don't want to go and check it. No, no? just oh, give him okay. on video. Just give him on video at least, right? Yeah, <laughs> their entire society is based on this guy and his writings. Mm-hmm. Just have somebody stationed down there to go, oh, hey, guys, George Washington said something else. <laughs> right. Shouldn't there really be somebody down there all the time, just in case? Like, I I would totally station somebody down there, you know. It's, it's an easy job. You can read your comic books and stuff or your book book films. Put sure. a woman down there. She's not doing anything. <laughs> She's a secretary. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I just have one of those dictation machines and... There you go. Good It'll smelling just take paper. It's a great idea. Yeah, but then people would sneak in there and say, I'm Harry Seldon, and I say Scott should have a raise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. How are they storing all their information right before things started? Like, during Prelude to Foundation. Couldn't they have just, like, saved whatever their current version of Wikipedia is? <laughs> <laughs> it's weird that there was no storage of all of their knowledge at that point. Well, it, it got overwritten. I think the Encyclopedia Galactica has all that stuff in there. <laughs> Stacks. Yeah. And the library at Trantor was uh, existent, so you could still go there. Of ah. course, it was hiding the second foundation, mm. so they might wipe your, wipe your mind when you try to check out a book or something. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> you can check into the library, but you <laughs> but can you never can't leave. check out. That's right. Mm-hmm. 
I'm just questioning the need for a encyclopedia foundation <laughs> starting from scratch. It was a front, Monty. Well, it was. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That solves everything. There was no need. You know, encyclopedia salesmen, they really talk a good game. They big, big. <laughs> Harry Seldon, the ultimate encyclopedia salesman. <laughs> Can I interest you in a galaxy spanning foundation today? Tell Your kids more. will thank you. Well, their many generations hence will thank you. Mm-hmm. What do you say we start you with volume NA to NB? Anything more about Foundation before we move to what we're reading? I still love it. I still enjoy it. It's comfort reading for oh, me. Oh, yeah. It goes down pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Fast read. Yeah. A lot of big ideas. Don't like the mule so much. I actually enjoy I do. I enjoy the part with the mule. I feel like it's a completely different style of story. You know, we get the, the world-spanning foundation stuff at the beginning and then it takes a turn and it just sort of becomes a zoom bang you know edge of your seat excitement kind of a thing which is not the same type of storytelling as at the beginning so i I enjoy it but on a very different level yeah Yeah. it's kind of a daring move and i approve of that (laughs) he could have kept churning out and then they ran into another problem and then they solved it and harry selden appeared and said good job and he winks wink yeah. I enjoy the um, the section titles for the second foundation, Two Men and the Mule, Two Men Without the Mule, Two yeah. Men and a Peasant, Two Men and the Elders, One Man and the Mule, One Man, the Mule, and Another. <laughs> Seems straightforward. It's good stuff. <laughs> Three Men and a Baby was in there too, but that, we had to cut that one out. Three Men, a Mule, and a Baby. Two, two and a half mules. But the mule can't have a baby, so... no. Two, yeah, and, one mule and, and nobody else, <laughs> and that's why he's so tragic. You see, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yes, that's what it ends, right? I'm yeah. called the mule. That's not why I'm called the mule. And he walks off sadly. Mm. In for yeah, that was a very abrupt end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, okay. So anyway, he wasn't that big a threat, and never mind. Then <laughs> <laughs> we have our mentalists who can outmental oh. the mental mutant. On CBS. Yes. <laughs> but I would say people who are listening, you kids out there with your fancy science fiction, go to your library, check out Foundation, and uh, read it. Yeah. And if you are very careful, you may discover it in the uh, in the basement of your library, a secret door that leads to a... Nope. <laughs> <laughs> to a bunker? A bunker containing the second Foundation. That's right. Yeah. To, containing a hologram of an old man. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's literally the plot of the librarians. Is anybody yeah, I think you're right. there? I think you're right. Hello? I think you're right. I don't know. There was a line about uh, librarians in this one. Um, the, whatever his name was. He says, I'm no man of action, no hero of any Teleview. Oh, yes. I'm a librarian. <laughs> it's like, okay. How much time did Selden spend recording these? Like, was it just all in a <laughs> row in one day? Yeah, I, yeah I, I, that's what I assume. I like to think that he had a computer program. He actually recorded hundreds of them, and the computer oh, program was monitoring what was happening <laughs> oh. in global affairs. And then he would like put the computer would put out the right one, like oh, this is number, this is situation eighty three, and then put that one. Yeah, he recorded all of the important phonemes so that they could just construct any speech yeah. they needed. Yeah, and in fact, he probably did a whole riff on Alien Invasion where he's like, hey, guys, I didn't foresee this. You're on so your you're own. Good luck. I'm I made, glad I'm dead. Here are the plans for a ray gun. <laughs> and then occasionally you'd have one that's been like, you know, it looks like you're having an alien invasion emergency. Just totally different voice. <laughs> Would you like some help with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, no. 
I like to think that there's a director there saying, Harry, that was great. Just one more take. If you could do a little more oof at the end. Yeah, once make more. Sure that's, for safety. that's true. He is kind of like Foundation's Clippy. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there it is, kids. You've heard it. Scott McNulty has told you. Go uh, to your library and check out Foundation. Do it now. Yeah. If your or library is open. Or buy a copy. You could do that, too. If you'd like to enrich the estate of Isaac Asimov, (laughs) you may do like Scott did with his fancy leather-bound volume. I did indeed. Does it read better? Does it read better in a fancy leather-bound volume, Scott? It's not actually leather-bound; it's cloth-bound. But uh, (laughs) did you cheap out and not get the leather-bound version? Shame on you! It's from the Everyman's Library. (laughs) It is a lovely edition, except for the aforementioned misappropriated exclamation points. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, let's move on and do something I like to do whenever we we have a book club, which is get a, a little taste of what other people are reading or have read recently that they'd like to mention. Gives you some ideas of other things that you might like to read. Scott, what are you reading? I am reading, well, I have recently read yes. uh, a book called The Trader Baru Cormorant uh, by Seth Dickinson, which I really loved, um, but I hesitate uh, to recommend it to anyone because <laughs> much like I love uh, K.J. Parker who who writes these kind of um, uh, fantasy novels that are there's no magic and there's just lots of pain and uh, betrayal and heartbreak and at the end you're just dissatisfied because everyone's unhappy uh, this is the same kind of thing uh, and it's right in the title the, the main character Baru Koromond is a traitor and so she betrays everybody uh, in a very elaborate scheme to uh, get revenge on this empire that takes over her homeland. And it's a very interesting book, and I really like it, but I can imagine some people getting to the end of the book and feeling quite cheated. Um, so hmm. if, if you can stomach that, check it out, because it's a good read. Erica, what are you reading? Yeah, I've been reading so much lately, so I will try to make all of these quick. I've just been on quite a, a book jag. So besides just frantically finishing the uh, the Foundation trilogy today, uh, uh, that was <laughs> that was I, I finished like just in time. I kind of fell asleep while I was reading it, so then I had to wake up and be like, <laughs> skim 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 skim. But I made it. Um, most recently, before that, I read a trilogy of books by Jamie Lee Moyer. The first is called Delia's Shadow, and they are sort of supernatural detective stories. Um, There are kind of two main characters. One is Delia and one is a detective. And um, they there are murder mysteries, but there are also ghosts. So she sees ghosts and the other guy's a detective. And um, it, it was one of those series where when I was finished reading it, I went for like several days where I would like reach for the book or for my Kindle expecting to jump back into this world and then remember I had finished them and I was so sad. So uh, if if you like the supernatural kind of thing or mysteries, I recommend checking those out because I thought they were excellent. And they take place um, in like the 1910s. So you get all kinds of interesting um, in San Francisco. Mm. Interesting. You feel like you're really in that place at that time after the, the earthquake and the fire and then during the war. It's uh, really good reads. Um, before that, I was, uh, following up on, I had started reading, um, John Scalzi's Old Man War series, Old Man's War series a long time ago, and just jumped back into it and read, uh, Zoe's Tale and The Ghost Brigades and, um, Last Colony. And now I'm realizing that it's been so long since I read Old Man's War that I have to go back and reread it because I don't really remember (laughs) what happened to it. They kept referring to things and I was like, I know I'm supposed to know what this is, but I really don't. So, 
that's next on my list. Um, and then uh, an author that I just love for sort of like light comfort reading is Sarah Addison Allen. And she came out with a new book like a year ago, which I finally got around to reading. I read the first page, realized it was a sequel to one of her other books. So then I had to go back and reread the first book. So the first one is Garden Spells and the newer one is called First Frost. And it is about a, uh, a family in a southern town i think like in somewhere in the carolinas who has uh family magic there's a um, an apple tree in the backyard that will throw apples at people and if you eat one of the apples you see a either wonderful or terrifying terrifying vision of the future and one of them is a um she's a caterer and the food that she makes with the ingredients from the garden can make people do or see or feel things and just each character has their own sort of thing and it's it's kind of wonderful so read both of those and last but not least, just before that, I zipped through the Fallen Blade series by Kelly McCullough um, super, super fast because they were, were really good to start with and just got better with each book. Uh, and that's about a an assassin who was an assassin uh, in, in thrall to a goddess of justice, and then the goddess was killed. So he just basically became kind of a, a back alley, uh, you know, jerk for hire kind of, and <laughs> alcoholic. And it's, it's sort Ooh, of a there story a of... call for that? Yeah, apparently <laughs> sweet and it's just sort of a, a story of of his redemption and um there's a lot of other characters that revolve around him so many strong female characters in these books it is just i mean the main character happens to be a guy but there's absolutely no difference in what uh it's so different from the size of books no difference between what a, a man and a woman in this world are are expected to do and it's a, a so well built the entire world is just constructed very well um around these characters so it was a that was another one where once i finished it i was really sad because there were no more and i couldn't go back into that world so i highly recommend the um the fallen blade series by kelly mccullough all right so there you go that's a lot of books yeah i've been reading so much wow (laughs) david what are you reading well i uh actually just uh, read Zoe's Tale a couple of weeks ago. Ah, I, that's I the one that got me into that series. That's the one I read really? first because it was well because it was a Hugo nominee, and so I read that, and I was oh, like, "Oh, this is okay. good." And then I went back and I read all the others. Yeah, I, I read them mostly straight uh, chronologically, and I just skipped over that one somehow. So I'm kind of going back and going, "Oh yeah, I remember this part of the story." Cool. I accidentally skipped to that actually after just reading Old Man's War. Oh uh, wow! And then went back to fill in, which is why I need to go back and reread Old Man's War because I'm just <laughs> now I'm all out of order, so I might as well. So, but yeah, right now the the novel that I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm sort of skipping between two books right now. Uh, I'm reading Welcome to Night Vale by Jeffrey Craner and Joseph Fink, which is of course tied to the podcast Welcome to Night Vale. But you don't necessarily have to have listened to the series to to get it. This is designed to be uh, just as much of an entry point for for new readers. Um, It is weird. And if you do know the show, you know that it's going to be weird. Uh, But it is delightful. So, yeah, I'm about a third of the way through that. And it's, it's setting up two parallel stories that are converging slowly and, uh, I, I kind of like that. It's it's a little more ambitious than the podcast in some ways. And uh, then on the nonfiction side, I am reading Tesla, Inventor of the Electric Age by W. Bernard Carlson, <laughs> uh, which should surprise nobody. Uh, not, I mean, it's not like I felt that I had to do a lot of research because, I mean, the Tesla radio shows are very specifically not 
really Nikola Tesla? <laughs> what? I mean, he's not exactly a two-fisted kind of guy. <laughs> That's why I got an F on my report. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, kids. There are facts in these. That's not one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and, and get some detail. And it is actually sort of triggering ideas for future episodes. Not that I need more ideas. I could do a whole series of just Tesla stories at this point. Yeah. Which is scary. Yeah. But, but it is a lot of fun. Uh, and it is very interesting to see just, you know, how much how much I already knew about him, but how much I had no idea about. So it's quite hmm. fascinating. And and just little things like the, the invention of radio. I mean, everyone knows Marconi invented radio. Well, Tesla really invented radio. Uh, Marconi just sort of snuck in there with the copyrights. Um, so, yeah, that happened to him a lot, which is why he died destitute and obsessed with pigeons in the New Yorker hmm. Hotel. But it is it is fascinating to, to learn more about the real guy. So... All right, Monty, what are you reading? Uh, well, yesterday I finished reading Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway, which is a book by Ooh. Michael Rydell, yeah. which is a, a history of musical theater in New York centered around the people who own the theaters, which are not really the most interesting people necessarily, but there's a lot more continuity there than trying to follow an actor because the actor's careers don't go too long and don't affect every single play. Uh Last month, I finished uh, the final Terry Pratchett book, The Shepherd's Crown. It's very good. It's not really finished. You can't help feeling like there's 30% of the book that didn't really get written. Hmm. But it's it's also heartbreaking very early on. So there's a little warning for people. Um, oh. The book I'm about to start is Lemony Snicket's uh, fourth book in the All the Wrong Questions series. Oh, yeah. Now... This is a new series. It's not the uh, series of unfortunate events. It's kind of it's kids, kind of trapped in a film noir type world, mm-hmm. and each of the books is titled with a question that was the wrong question to be asked at a certain point in the plot. So the first three are called "Who could that be at this hour?" "When did you see her last?" and "Shouldn't you be in school?" This fourth and final one takes a somewhat different tack, and the question is, why is this night different from all other nights? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that question has been asked before, but Mm -hmm. apparently it was the wrong one this time. And I'm also trying to work my way through Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol comic books. They are crazy! Mm. (laughs) Grant Morrison, generally, it's going to be crazy. Yeah. Uh, oh, and I just read uh, John Krakauer's two big books, Into Thin Air and Under the Banner of Heaven. Oh, very good. Yeah. All right. They're great. Jason, what are you reading? What, Scott? Jason, I, I wonder, what, what might you, you be reading? It's amazing that you should ask that. You always seem to be the one who asked that question. I appreciate it. I care about it. you. All Thank these you. other jerks don't. I just, well, as mentioned earlier, I finished Ancillary Mercy, the third book in the uh, Imperial Ratch series by Anne Leckie. I enjoyed it. Um, book two, as we mentioned on a previous podcast, took me a little by surprise and how the scope it felt to me was a lot smaller. In the third book, I was surprised again that rather than going off to have another adventure, it the, the book really just kind of does a U-turn and goes right back to where the second book happened. But um, in, in its... Ex- in, 
in its run, not only do you get to see more of these characters, you get to see her pay off actually a lot of things that might have more to do with the bigger picture than we realized initially. And I, I think it, it's I think it's very good, and it's got a good ending that's knowing that's very knowing about the fact that while this is the end of the book, that the stories go on and on. And I, I think she did a really nice job, so I like that one a lot. Um, I read the new Expanse novella, The Vital Abyss, which I really enjoyed. And uh, it serves three different purposes, which is kind of fascinating in giving some some it tells a character story about an interesting character who ends up in a very interesting place. It tells a story about the uh, sort of origins of the uh, the loosing of the proto molecule on the station in the first Expanse book, Leviathan Wakes, and has a hint about where the story might be going next uh, involving shady characters in the solar system. So it's a, it's an interesting little combination as a, as a very short, quick uh, novella. And I am in the midst of reading the lives of Tao by Wesley Chu, which I am enjoying greatly and is the closest to the Rook of any book that I've read. I think in a while it's not, I wouldn't say it's as good as the Rook, but it's got kind of a feel like that where it's this sort of secret agent spy thing, but also with a completely, weird uh fantasy sci-fi ish elements so i'm enjoying that that's it i still have that on my kindle i haven't gotten to it yet i had it there for a while but i'm i'm enjoying it now i'm actually i i put it aside to read uh to reread foundation now i'm going to happily go back to the lives of Tao. uh all right well we've reached the end then we've we've uh come up with a big list uh, list of books for you to read here in the what are we reading segment and of course our advice, again, go to your library on Trantor or your nearest available galactic planet <laughs> and read right. Foundation by Isaac Asimov. And I'd like to thank my guests for joining me to talk about this. Monty Ashley, thank you very much. I take back what I said about you being a mutant uh, telepath. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> I love you, Monty, and everything that you... I will be loyal to you forever, Monty. What... Oh, I hated <laughs> when I didn't like you, but now I like you and I will. Anyway, <laughs> Scott McNulty, <laughs> thank you for being here. May the galactic spirit guide you, Jason. Thank you. May the force be with you. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Sure. Yes. David Lore. Star Wars. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad we managed to get all the way through without doing a Magnifico. A clown. A clown. Joke. But now there it is. <laughs> Sometimes clown. you kill the things you love. And and Erica Ensign, uh, I'm I'm so glad that you will not just be stuck with your gray homespun. I I am thrilled about this. Yep. Yeah. To the space fiend with all that gray homespun. Mm -hmm. Indeed, the space fiend. Well done. And to everybody out there for listening to this uh, transmission reaching you across the galaxy. Uh, thank you for doing so. And now you can go back to your lives and hope that the mule doesn't come for you in the night. That's what noise a mule makes. Uh, <laughs> a spooky, spooky mule. mule. That's exactly it. Well, thanks to thanks for listening to the incomparable. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.